An army retreats to find a more strategic location, not to give up, not to run away, but actually to come at the issue from a different perspective. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with landscape architect and author Rosetta Elkin. Rosetta joins us today to discuss her new book, Landscapes of Retreat. Rosetta, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Nice to be back. Uh, yeah, welcome back, I should say. It's lovely to have you back. Um, you write in the introduction that the principal motive behind writing the book comes from your commitment to developing what you describe as amendatory relations. So let, help us understand what you mean by amendatory relations. That's um, a, a word that was with me throughout a lot of this work to amend is, is more than of course, to reconcile and, and it goes beyond to acknowledge. And if we could amend our relations rather than re anything, it seems as though what that what that does is it it, it just it defends the, the the desire to come together, and um, it repairs something along the way without it being about fixing. Um, so I I think a, a mandatory relations for me became much more intimate an, an intimacy that I was seeking in in a word as an author more than as a landscape architect. You open by defining your terms, landscape, uh, the thickness of the earth animated by multi-species activity and retreat, that is patterns of habitation that engage landscape uh, processes. I mean, I read the book in some ways as a kind of um, in praise of retreat, you know, and in some ways retrieving retreat, the concept of retreat, uh, you define retreat here, among other things, as a, quote, condition of adaptation. So tell me, why, why would you, why focus a book project? This has obviously been um, a decade or so in the making overall. Like, why why defend retreat? Well, I, I don't think it needs to be um, defined in a binary against relocation, although it does tend to arise in that way. Um, I am used to the word retreat. It doesn't offend me, I suppose, as it does in, in many contexts. Um, if you look into the etymology and the history of it, whether through military terms or in ecology, you know, a, um, an army retreats to find a more uh, strategic location, not to give up, not to run away. But actually, to come at the, the issue from a different perspective, um, salamanders retreat, glaciers retreat, fish retreat to lower lake levels, to warmer temperatures. It's it's the, uh, actually quite a form of adaptation that is extremely organic and more accurate to the living environment. Relocation is a, an objective term. One can relocate a church but not a congregation. A congregation has to decide to retreat. And as soon as these sort of bureaucratic processes of, of relocation come into a community and treat people like objects um, and discuss relocation, that's when um, the, the, the trust is broken. And that's also why one needs to amend it. 
and this is the same sort of minor changes in order to make things more up to date, more fair, more mandatory. Um, so, so it just became very clear that in working with plants, with soils, with the right to clean air and water, with humans making tough decisions in in often very vulnerable lands, that the word retreat was quite comfortable. And it was only in more steadfast, bureaucratic, academic, institutional settings that the word brought friction. Um, so I, I felt we could revisit, um, revisit retreat as landscape thinkers, as those that are sensitive to the living environment, also by making it more clear that then relocation is quite a, an important architectural term. I do want my house to be relocated, but then you pick it up and you move it, but don't pick up, you know, <laughs> don't pick up my family, right? Um, we'll have a discussion. <laughs> you use the example that you can't relocate a glacier. Um, glaciers retreat, right? They don't uh, relocate. Um, in, in that context, um, one of the things I find, you know, among many things fascinating about the book is this notion that you, you know, choose not to look at, you know, top down what you've referred to recently now as bureaucratic, or I could say, you know, kind of government-based projects of relocation. Those aren't the cases in the book. Uh, the book is centered around five um, landscapes in retreat, uh, a forest in Japan, a river in Chile, a village in Alaska, a park in Nepal, and um, a maritime uh, peninsula in, in Quebec. How did you go about identifying these cases of retreat uh, amongst the what must be dozens, hundreds available around the world? Yeah, great question. Uh, I ask myself that all the time. I mean, not where the five come from, but let's say what makes a project a landscape of retreat? Um, a, 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 a defining feature is respect for the land that's left behind, often after relocation strategies have unfolded. Um, and finding those cases was an academic project that I uh, endeavored at, when I was co-director of the Risk and Resilience MDES at the Graduate School of Design. Um, I worked with fantastic students. Uh, I did not work alone. This isn't the kind of work one does alone. So kudos to all of, of, of the support. Um, we were in it together and we were trying to figure out there was something intangible that we knew when something was retreat, but, but that's not academic enough. So we had to just keep digging. Um, uh, we probably went through hundreds of cases trying to decipher if it was retreat or relocation. Um, and then of course, refining what the conditions were. Um, and it's it is in the book, but there are there are three main conditions for retreat. So that allowed us to put um, one project in the bucket of relocation, or another in the bucket of retreat, or of course that middle zone. Um, but the first is a, a heightened perception of risk itself. So you know the risk you're living with. It's not a surprise. Um, you're not surprised that when the government tells you you live in a salt marsh, it's already known. Um, so that understanding of risk is is present. Um, there's an established relationship to the past in some way, even if it's one generation. It can also be archaeological evidence that a town is very proud of, you know, the archaeology that's been found there. And so they have that link to the past 
or in scholarship or whatever number of timescales uh, they they have that that um, link. And the last is is of course some degree of community based organization, and that can be as simple as a soccer team or you know or or an actual group that is advocating to move. Uh, but but you know the name of your neighbor is another way to put it. There's a, a sense of community that's that's taken for granted or known, uh, and it's it allows a condition. Those three um, elements kind of come together, and they allow decision making to unfold um, at the at the level of of the land, at the level of livability. And it was very difficult to find. Um, those conditions in a lot of the relocation schemes that we studied, there was um, um, at some point a heavy hand, and it and it and again it it broke things apart, which is why that amend term was was so important. These communities don't necessarily need the amendatory relations, but some of the communities across the world living in vulnerable lands, um, as designers, there there isn't um, an opportunity to 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 bring options uh, that aren't that are more accurate to their experience, let's say uh, number of timescales, community cohesion, and, and an understanding of risk. So, in addition to you know the the self awareness or perception of ongoing risk, this established relationship to the past and whatever, whether it's oral history or archival material or you know whatever generational timescale you're discussing, some degree of social organization, self ordering, self structuring, but you added a fourth which is the condition requiring a communal naming ritual or ceremony. Help me understand this. Why, why, why add that fourth requirement? What, what's the role of ritual or ceremony in acknowledging retreat? That was a contentious fourth because that is definitely in the cases that are in the book, but they didn't resonate through all the cases we felt were retreat. So we have this, we used to call it the dossier. We were going to have this dossier of, you know, 50 or 60 or what, you know, whatever. We still have them uh, cases that we felt were retreat, but there was something missing and we weren't close enough to the context to, to, um, to, to, to unpack it. Um, but that communal naming, I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, one can put it in the spiritual world, but it can be as simple as renaming a park. Right. I mean, there's an acknowledgement that something happened and we, we want to acknowledge that by virtue of recognizing that the land is different now and we want future generations to, to know it. And we do that in, you know, whether you rename a street or, um, at, of course, in some cases, it's much more uh, of an indigenous and spiritual, especially in the case of Alaska, where the, the United States government was trying to move um, this uh, a town to their hunting grounds. Of course, they didn't want to move to their hunting grounds. Well, why? It's great land. Well, but it's our hunting grounds, right? So rather, rather than, you know, rather than, than pick up on that relocation strategy, they, they chose for difference and they renamed a land, which was like a welcoming. Um, the, the same uh, in Japan, where uh, they planted a forest and then came together to find a name for the forest because, well, forest needs a name. <laughs> and there's something in that acknowledgement that 
yeah, as I put it in the book, it begins life anew. It allows the future to unfold instead of simply being sort of stuck in the remnants of the past that can often be very hurtful. You mentioned the Japanese forest, um, and you describe in this first case in the book that uh, Japan has had a, a, a long history of dealing with uh, coastal settlement and the risks of living on the coasts, um, and that for a very long time, uh, communities have chosen to plant trees in and amongst the land disturbed by hurricanes and tropical storms, cyclones, and the like. Um, and that you you say that in in turn that those mitigation forests that arise from those practices do more than prevent damage from blown sand, tidal surges, and salt-laden wood. So this is, a, I think, a great example of how the cases in the book are not really advocating for retreat, but rather describing landscapes that are already in forms of retreat. And in that regard, it's less of a defense and more of a set of examples or new ways of illuminating uh, these uh, conditions. So so what might we learn from the communal planting of trees in the wake of hurricanes in Japan? Yeah, that case is Niji no Matsubara. Um, and it is a, a, a tsunami forest that was planted in the Edo period. So at this point, it really is a, a magical old growth forest, primarily of one species because it was hand planted. Um, the other species that are there are volunteers, they're, they're um, spontaneous. Um, what we can learn from, from something that is, you know, pushing on 400 years in, is that we can be good ancestors to future generations. The community that lives at the fringes of Niji no Matsubara know that their great and great great grandparents helped plant that forest not just to plant a forest but to commemorate that there was a storm commemorate that we don't build right back on top of that memory and that in turn you're creating a critical setback from development and so why not um, and it is a, a very vibrant public space. Um, nobody owns the shore. You can, uh, of course, the suggestion is that you can value the land that's left behind after a major event and not per sort of clean it up and pretend nothing happened, which is for better or worse what a lot of landscape architects are asked to do now. Just come in and clean it up, make it look like nothing happened here. And that... Um, is 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 a, a sort of restoration on life support because we we if we understand change and we understand evolutionary time, especially along a vulnerable coast, not not vulnerable to plant life, not vulnerable to sands, not not vulnerable to recreation either, but vulnerable to foundations. Uh, then you know then we we can really appreciate that something as simple as planting a tree is a multi generational act of of care. Um, and it, I have to say, it's not just planting the tree, of course. It's the inheritance of taking care of that tree, um, which was probably the biggest surprise of the firsthand experience of going there in person. I've learned from you um, in these conversations, you don't plant a tree unless you know who's going to take care of it and where the water's going to come from. So uh, thanks for that. You mentioned the village in Alaska. Um, this is New Talk. 
um, in which the Bering Sea coast is flooding, the ground is subsiding, uh, and at the same moment, the desire on behalf of governments, you know, locally and and further further afield, um, is to relocate. So, why did you make the decision that this small village on the Bering Sea coast would fit into your list of five? Yeah, that's um. That's I'm not sure if you you've got to that in the book, and certainly others who are familiar with the permafrost melt will will know. Newtok is one of the most studied uh, villages in the permafrost zone. It has been so studied, in fact, that it's surprising that a village of fifteen hundred uh, individual families can't uh, just take some of that academic attention and move. <laughs> It is not hard to move 1,500 people. It is difficult to um, delaminate them from the, the bureaucratic assumptions that where they move has to be on so-called indigenous territory. And that's the contention. And um, those structures, one of the reasons to point out the case in New Talk isn't so much to dive back into this overstudied town, but to reveal that when landscape is respected, then those political boundaries of, let's say, a reservation start to seem pretty pretty outdated in the 21st century. And so the question we should be asking ourselves as landscape architects is what, where and how those lines start to matter, um, especially in those kinds of externalities, like the permafrost in Alaska is, you know, melting, not due to what the village of Newtok has contributed to to our atmosphere, certainly. Um, so, you know, when when one needs to build a dam or a pipeline, uh, political boundaries are very mobile, surprisingly mobile, really just agile and bendy. But when it comes to um, you know selling a state or um, relocating a fishing village, it, it just it it really boils down to uh, what the federal government is willing or not willing to do. Um, so it was a, a, probably the most difficult case of well, that's hard to say that a very a very charged case uh, that was mostly charged uh, because I, I decided not to go there. So it's the only case where I didn't travel to. I don't know if you noticed that, Charles. I mean, I know the book uh, both describes, and you um, go to some go to some lengths to describe uh, a, a kind of multivalent process. Uh, this involves field work, walking seems central to this research. Um, you have annotated sketches and diagrams. You have photographs of collected plant material and other tools that bring with you. Um, I'm struck by just the depth of kind of layers of various forms of research. There, there are interviews. Uh, a range of archival photographs and maps, of course, it's well documented and and, and quite uh, deep in terms of its bibliography. So, so how did you come to decide not to visit New Talk, given that it's so studied? Um, in conversation with the lawyer um, in Anchorage, who uh, is defending the town of New Talk, um, and he was extremely willing to talk to me and my team, or just me, as much as we wanted. And to put me in touch with with as many um, individuals over Zoom as uh, Zoom before COVID, <laughs> uh, as 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 desirable. But at the time that the field work was planned, and it's it's tough to get there. We were going to stay in the school. We were going to sleep in the school at night 
you know, in sleeping bags because of, you know, you can't sleep outside for, you know, safety of, of wild animals. Um, and, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was planned. We were, we were ready to go. It was going to take a long time to get there, but we, we had it all worked out. And, um, and we spoke uh, to Michael and he said, please don't come. And it was just the most honest and, you know, tearful conversation uh, because they had, you know, the town was basically coming to a decision that was ripping them apart because they, half of the town wanted to take the buyout money from the federal government and move to the hunting grounds because they said, well, let's just take any deal because they know, we know that the deal can disappear. And the other half of the town said, no, not because they don't want to move, but because they wouldn't go to the hunting grounds. Um, and so, of course, we we didn't want to cause more grief in a time of grief. I think um, I ended up working with a, a fantastic um, photographer, uh, uh, two fantastic photographers, actually, uh, Katie Orlinsky in particular, uh, who goes there often. Um, and so I started talking to Katie more. Um, and I'm still in touch with her and her, it's really worth looking at, at her photographs because there's so many photographs of children and I, I, I couldn't help but ask. And of course, this is part of the non-extractive kind of when you do field work, how do you learn to share, but not take and hoard, you know, especially for particular purposes, like a career or tenure, if I can be so blunt. Um, and Katie says, well, the, uh, every time I go, I teach photography to the, to, the, to the school kids. It's the only way I feel you know, great about going. So, of course, she has some of the most interesting photographs because she goes off with the kids and she gives them a camera and they go off and they come back with a role. And she doesn't even know what half of them are going to be about, but it's so genuine and playful and real. Um, and so I, I, I did non non-sighted field work for for Alaska. I think it's a it's a great example of an ethic of field work in which one should first do no harm, right? No uh, additional uh grief on top of the existing grief. Um one of the consistent themes that's woven throughout the book project comes across in various ways, but consistently is the importance of landing a conversation about climate adaptation uh retreat among other topics uh on the land. Right? The specificity of it. Um, you've mentioned recently the federal government's involvement, the drawing of boundaries, the negotiation of um, of treaties, etc. And in that context, I'm just struck by um, the potential of either disconnect or really the critique that the book offers of those more abstract, uh, more bureaucratic, more distanced practices. Um, you mentioned um, that, you know, in, in part, you've been engaging with these topics for the past decade or so, and, and that early work you were doing was very much in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, and in fact, a kind of uh, academic industrial complex, is that fair, of response to superstorms and a kind of proliferation of of um, practices and strategies and both terms and techniques, but also ways of thinking about and approaching, uh, you know, the conditions of the climate crisis. Your work obviously has moved on uh, quite a lot given the new book. And so I want to ask you about that and the limits of what you've called a kind of bureaucratic approach or a kind of top-down approach to thinking about our response to climate. 
Well, I think it's also worth say, saying it's a response to our shared climate. It's really, I mean, we're we're so it's so personal now. It's no longer um, a module. It's no longer a class you can take. It's no longer this sort of add-on. And oh, shouldn't we talk about climate change before we end this conversation? I mean, this has become so interwoven, and we breathe it, and we breathe the same air, and our whole world is as we know, extremely interconnected uh, in that way. Um, and so everyone has a climate-based um, shift that they can relate to on a very personal level. It's not abstracted anymore as it was in Sandy, where it was like, you know, were you, you know, were you in New Jersey or were you in Rhode Island? Because this is different. And, and obviously, if you were in D.C., you just read about it. So it's not personal yet. Um, and that suggests that the the, the patterns have um, accumulated so much that our attention is we're, we're at attention, right? Um, things have changed, but maybe not enough. Is maybe I don't want to say that we don't need the planning, the bureaucratic necessity of zoning and figuring things out and having preemptive policy is a necessity, but it it's not the only one. And I think we've, we're being taught that it is the only one. And so one of the reasons to do this is to say, well, what can we learn from a little village that doesn't make the news, that's doing things the way they need to do things and doesn't have anything to offer, except we went with the flow and we're better for it now. I feel like I, I I know I can learn like that. For instance, the case in Quebec was very much like that, um, where they sort of slipped under the they they use the, the 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 necessary funding that comes sort of a wash after an event, but they use it in their way and not in in a in a way that was being scripted for them um, by others, and so. It puts the designer in in an interesting position where uh, sometimes non-material negotiations in place can be as much an act of design as an ex situ drawing that lands somewhere else. And I think that's a really important role for, for what we do in this time where we also understand it's shared, right? This is back to the shared climate. I mean, it, it it's very hard to put you know put that distance in in between individuals making decisions um and individuals sort of suffering the consequences if you will so i i think we need just to do more than one thing well right and so sometimes the the bureaucratic changes are are doing right by their contexts but that is just cannot be a blanket strategy um, what you can do in Lower Manhattan cannot possibly be what you can do in New Talk, and and yet this is just sort of the operations manual is supposed to um, address all contexts. And as landscape thinkers, we we know how different these lands are, uh, and not just the social milieu, but but even the ecological one. Uh, so why should our operations be so so limited? Why should our contributions be so limited? Um, your listeners will know Kate Orff, of course, and I brought my students to her class at Columbia recently, um, and she works on climate adaptation and also through Sandy and also through all of that Sandy funding. And she asked a question 
Not I. It sounds like a question I would have asked, but she asked a question of the class, which included my students. And she said, do you think we are more prepared 12 years since Sandy? And the whole class was grim and straight faced and they shook their heads. And these are 20 year olds. And this is, you know, to the point of the ancestry sort of, this is what we're giving is that despite our efforts over the last 12 years, our efforts, um, it, we need to, more people doing more things and shedding light on all the possibilities of adaptation. Adaptation isn't singular. And so all what I'm trying to do with this book or with my work on retreat is to just rethink some of the smaller scale possibilities and bring attention to them. Among the various topics that are shared across the five, I'm interested in the ways in which some of these uh, practices, um, uh, Japanese mitigation forestry, for example, in the wake of a, of a, of a hurricane, um, uh, have quite a long durée. But at the same moment, some of these are quite contemporary and more recent. That is, you're not making a distinction about vernacular practices as prioritized over more modern or contemporary ones. But in each one, there are a series of let's call them biodynamic processes, landscape processes, in which the landscape is already adapting. And I think a part of what I hear you, you know, kind of pleading for in the book is a, a kind of human awareness of this, right? Or maybe it's an awareness on on behalf of the rest of us. Yeah, I I would I would be so thrilled to have a lexicon, a vocabulary, the words to tell stories about landscapes that were more specific. I mean, I suppose that's what those of us in landscape are, are always trying to do is find the right words for, for what we're after. Um, but, but the idea that you can, you can, you can buy property and not have any sense of if it's granite or clay or, or fill or, you know, or, or a former indigenous a settlement or an African-American burial ground. Like you just, there's no Zillow layer where you can reveal what land you're purchasing, what land you're buying, what land you're stewarding or what, what the land is um, in this extant age, let alone what it has been. And, and, but that has value because a lot of, places in the world, a lot of settlements in the world are in low-lying floodable areas um, or high ground that is, you know, tremendously quaky or um, uh, permafrost that's not so perma and all everything in between. Um, we, you know, I, I think of the Quebec case in St. Flavie because there their high, high tide is in December. So it's ice that comes to the shore, not waves. Waves are scary. Waves are happening in, in the summer. Waves are fun. Uh, but ice, uh, when it comes to the shore, takes big chunks. It's not the sort of slowness of erosion that we think of on a sandy beach. It's it's really those big chunks of ice cave. That's why it's just sort of crack and cave these large chunks uh, of the shore out to sea. <laughs> Um, uh, and it, 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 it's remarkable. Um, it's, it's remarkable to see how it changes the shoreline, how quickly it changes the shoreline. Um, but it's also, uh, what was incredible about 
speaking to people and and learning from uh, from the land itself, as as you put it, um, is that the places I went to, there were words for that, and there were names for it, and there were conditions known, which speaks to those three conditions of retreat. It isn't just sort of a surprise that the ice is coming, or everyone knows high high tide is in the early December. Kids know it, grandparents know it, everyone knows it. Um, I. I don't know if anyone in lower Manhattan knows when high, high tide is, but I, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, di- a different, a diff- different form of landscape literacy in New York. You know, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I've more recently been following Flacco, the Australia, Australasian Eagle owl who escaped from central park zoo, right? That, that's my form of landscape literacy uh, in Manhattan. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the Gaspésie Peninsula, um, kind of tidal river mouth, uh, Eastern maritime Quebec, um, uh, the, the Newtok village, uh, Bering sea, uh, river in Chile, uh, coastal forest in Japan. Many of these are of course, subject to flooding. I was struck by the fourth case, um, a park in Nepal, a park in the wake of the loss of a village um, that was impacted um, by earthquake triggered rockfall at an enormous scale. And because that's not a case that comes to mind immediately when thinking about climate adaptation uh, day to day, I'm I'm curious about that example and and how it is that that form of retreat helps round out the story. Um. What's important about the case in Nepal is that it's the making of land instead of the taking of it, right? Um, And so in these climate dynamics, especially in coastal environments or or even in, you know, the taking of lands that are more social in, in, and, and colonial in, in Alaska, um, what glaciers do is they also make new land, reveal new land, or or literally dump new land. Um, and this sort of baby land is not something we talk about very often. And what happened in Langtang was a hanging glacier buried a village, but it, it also filled a valley. And so the topography is entirely different. It's, it's you know, it's a kilometer deep. I mean, it's not uh, a small amount of of stuff and it it's um while it's tragic it the creation of the new land was um an opportunity to talk about the all of the different commands that this change is having across the the planet so um i nepal was so one of the things i haven't i suppose it's worth mentioning each case was you know, relatively remote by virtue of where the main city or settlement or urbanization center would be. These are places that you needed to work to get to. That's right. So, you know, long kayak trip, like a week long, 10 days of kayaking in Chile because foresters don't want to put roads along their extractive uh, basically forest mines. Uh, so we had to take the river, um, you know, just the length, forget it's just the length of getting to Nepal by, by, by plane, you know, you're exhausted, exhausted before you get there, but it was a, a very, it was, a, it was a trek that I wasn't necessarily prepared for, um, mentally. I think physically I had done all of this. You're supposed to train and you're going to high altitude and take these pills and okay, fine. Um, but, um, it was it was an emotional 
I, I felt like at every every meter we went up, I was sort of shedding something about the more terrestrial lowlands that I'm from and know. And being in the Himalayas is very um it's spiritual. I, I don't. I don't think anyone can think of it any any other way. Uh, it 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 increases in intensity as you climb, um, and uh, and so it it was a very important but very exhaustive time in Nepal to consider uh, how a lot of the um, a lot of this new land will be treated. Uh, this is a this you know I, I can't help but be eternally optimistic, Charles. I mean, it, if most people read about Longtang, it's it's all, of course, it buried a village, so that should in a way be enough said, right? The 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 the, the sadness of that, but when you start to to talk to people and look around at the culture and and learn and also like take some of those academic articles you've been like I had been reading for years like for instance on Mane walls Mane walls are 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 these incredible demarcators of change that are laid by hand and then walked around uh, in a very traditional way repeating traditional uh, song and they're they're positioned in relation to recent risk and now recent risk could be centuries old so they're sort of spotted around but but people know Mane walls, and so there is no question that all this new baby land would require a Mane wall. And that you know, the, then the question is, you know, <laughs> are there any? Does anyone know how to make a Mane wall anymore in the in the you know in the town and and going to the next town and um, and where to position it? And you know, there's a lot of academic literature about whether it's perpendicular or parallel to the risk and whether you trace it or you demarcate it. And and just having those conversations and knowing that we were in this, we were experiencing a long durée of change that had been experienced by, by ancestors past and now by trekkers present. It's one of the most famous trekking sites. So, um, you know, that that's that's a beautiful... That's a beautiful world we live in. Um, and I, I'm I just I want to share it. I want to share long time as a positive experience and not just as the headline that a village is buried, because there the 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 laughter, the joy, the engagement. Nepal is one of the happiest places I went. You dedicate the book um to the memory of Heather Morgan, who passed away um all too young. Um Tell us about Heather Morgan and your relationship with her. Thank you for that opportunity, Charles. And thank you for noticing. Um, I wrote this book after having done the field work during COVID and my close friend and colleague, Heather, passed away during that time. Um, I met Heather when she was the head of sustainability for the Army Corps of Engineers. It was pretty awesome to have a female landscape architect as the head of something at the Army Corps of Engineers. And so we met post-Sandy in that flood of funding and, and project making and ideation and, and, and hope that a lot of designers and, and like-minded um, planners had um, for change at that time. And so 
And we stayed close. We met there, but we stayed close and our our we went from being colleagues to to friends. But she was a a fierce advocate for landscape change and felt strongly that um that that if we could acknowledge change as landscape architects, that it would be the 20th century, 21st, we would we could overcome the stasis of the 20th century and really start to work with very large scale systems, you know, which is why, of course, she found herself at the at the Army Corps. Um, more than anything, this is just a friend that loved landscape. So we would hike and we would go places and we would we would we would talk a lot about our love of change. I think to love landscape is to love change. And so with this sort of like changeability that we're all uh, uh, discussing there, I, I just, I feel strongly that there could be an incredible embrace of it. It's, it's such a, it's such a reminder of our, our humanity. Um, it's an opportunity. And, and um, so I was, yeah, I, I, I was sad to miss Heather. And so it's the very least I could do for her memory and her contributions. Rosetta Elkin, thanks so very much. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.